0: I am Citizen 44.
1: This show is being sponsored by Phoenix, Oregon. The movie.
2: We're all living in a simulation. Some alien race out there using our misery for entertainment.
0: How's the comic book going? It's languishing unfinished. You don't have time because you're working your ass off at Kyle's terrible restaurant. (laughs)
2: 359, Bob. Cutting it close. You should be grateful that you have a job. Grateful. Maybe I'll
1: join
2: you. I feel like I'm 14 again.
0: Drawing comics and needing a ride home. Close your eyes for a minute. I want you to visualize what you'll be doing 10 years from now. Are you serious? I think you've lost your mind. No, you're not visualizing your body. Come on, close your eyes. I not close my eyes anymore. I feel like an idiot. You could roll. I remember.
2: It's a completely useless talent. Rising Phoenix.
0: Come for the pizzas. Oh, my God. Stay for the bowling. Aliens made you throw that strike. Right. It's my destiny, Bobby. I know it is. Imagine being an owner, drawing your comics whenever you want.
2: Oh, man. You
0: serious? That's what I'm talking about. Woo!
1: Bobby?
2: My partner, Carlos, makes this delicious dough with his hands. Yes. I got 300 scores before, but nobody ever put my pictures in the papers. You should enter our grand opening tournament. You haven't even seen me roll Hoffy. You haven't seen the action on my ball.
0: Mario put his money in too. He has a right to ask questions. I'm his proxy.
2: I've been helping you. For months. He's been helping Mario. You are a paranoid little child. I don't know what to say, Theo. You're leaving a lot of money on the table. Nice going. You're going down.
0: Not your fault. Well. If it's not my fault, then it's Tanya's. If it's not Tanya's fault, then it's the alien's.
2: You need to take care of yourself, Bobby. I am fine. I am a grown woman.
1: (laughs) These could be the best years of your life. Do you realize that? Visualize.
2: This is what I live for, Hoffie. Frame 10. These two geniuses are opening up a pizza parlor-slash-bowling alley. It's classy.
0: Phoenix, Oregon.
1: Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number seven zero. I have two guests on today's show, both from the movie Phoenix, Oregon, which is currently playing right here at the Varsity Theater in Ashland, Oregon, for a limited time. Super stoked to have co-star Jesse Borrego, a veteran actor, producer, has a long list of theatrical accomplishments. Super great guy, a lot of fun. Very lucky to have him on the show. Also, we have Louis Rodriguez, also was in phoenix oregon and one of the producers and a longtime friend so let's get right to it En el armario Y siéntate a tomar café Algo raro está pasando Y creo que es en el batrí Hey Louis Rodriguez, what's happening man? What's up, Mark? It's all good, man. Thank you so much for coming in to doing the show. I appreciate it. I know you're slammed with hitting the road with Phoenix, Oregon, the movie, right?
2: Yeah, first and foremost, man, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're busy. We're gearing up to take off on our national tour on June 13th, so that's coming up real quick.
1: I know you got a couple of RVs. You're getting them wrapped. You got Gary and Annie getting geared up to get on the road and pimp this movie, right? We're jumping in two RVs wrapped in
2: movie billboards and hitting the road all across the country and showing the film.
1: So where are you starting?
2: We're starting in Oregon. We're going to head up to Grants Pass, to Portland, and then loop back down, do a little bit of Northern California, and then head south down to LA and Phoenix and San Antonio and loop around and head to New York. So you got like three months? This is a summer tour, yeah, so this is what we're doing this summer, man. It's going to be awesome.
1: It's pretty cool, man. Well, the movie's doing well. We're in the fourth week here at the Varsity Theater in Ashland, Oregon.
2: Yeah, we've been really lucky that people keep going to see the film. Originally, we had started with a week that quickly went to two weeks, then three weeks, then four weeks. So we're super grateful and blessed that people are continuing to see the movie and that allowed us to play a month. That's really something special for us, for sure.
1: Gary's a homeboy here in town. Everybody loves him and Annie and you and you're sharing today's show with someone very special too Jesse Borrego yeah you were on screen with that cat
2: yeah we had an incredible cast and I gotta tell you that I felt blessed to be working with every single actor that was on set with us the thing with Jesse is is that I've been following his work for a long time one of his most well-known movies blood and blood out which I watched 50 times growing up is one of my favorite films so it was pretty surreal to connect with them for the first time and to go on set with them the first time and to do scenes with him for the first time so he plays my uncle in the movie
1: you're so, rudy he's yeah, carlos yes
2: so it's pretty crazy i mean i remember being on set the first day that we did our first scenes and thinking i don't know how i got here but all of a sudden i'm standing there getting ready to do scenes with jesse borrego so it was pretty dope man
1: he's a great guy he gave a great interview thank you you helped set that up And one thing that fascinated me, and I don't think there's much talk about it because it's not typically a storyline in major feature motion pictures, the bedrock of the movie is the Mexican familia. I thought that was a pretty unique aspect that you and Jesse pulled together with all the other actors in the film. Yeah, I feel
2: like it is very present, but it's very subtle at the same time. I think Gary did a phenomenal job with the script as a whole. I think it's very well-written. He's a great writer. And I think what a lot of people appreciate about the film is that the Latino culture is in sync with the entire aspect of the film. Even the villain. Most definitely, Ray Gagos is a phenomenal actor. We were lucky that he wanted to come on send to this project with us. He had just been working on Triple Frontier with Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, and all these great actors. So he came on send, did his thing just like everybody else. It was super dope. The Latino aspect is woven in really organically. We just did a four day run in Portland and we had a lot of Latino people in the audience. They came out for Jesse. They came out for Jesse, man. He has a big fan base and it was really neat to see people that had been following his career. And they showed up with all kinds of memorabilia from some of his past work and then they bought Phoenix Organ Apparel. So we're having a good time and we're trying things out and it's been working for us so far. and. The support that we've been getting from people here locally as well as portland has been really incredible man i think we've done about nine screenings and you can feel the audience connecting with the movie and people like it man it's being received really well and we couldn't be any happier with how the movies kicked off
1: it doesn't feel like you're just going to see some fantasy movie It looks like something that could have gone down with guys who would look and act just like this. It feels like
2: a very genuine interpretation of friendship and struggle. The first time Gary sent me the script, I fell in love with it right away, man. It's been all there since the beginning. Obviously, it's evolved. Even though it's a story about midlife, I think it resonates with people of all ages. People can connect with that aspect of hopelessness at times, being in ruts that you try to figure out how to get out of but also genuine friendship and having hope and being passionate and being optimistic. I think there's really beautiful balance between these two characters that allows people to, in a way, see themselves in both. And I think that that's what moved people the most. I think this movie has had the ability to move people and that's a really beautiful thing to see.
1: You're also one of the producers on this movie, so it even brings you closer to the whole process. How did that feel to you being part of a project that has some of your roots involved with it and kind of brings that into the forefront. Did it make you feel differently about being part of this project?
2: The Latino culture and aspect was very present in the script when I read it and obviously was excited to work with a cast that was diverse and tell the story of this human connection between people that happen to be from different backgrounds but They're all ingrained in one segment of life with this shared story. Latinos are represented as just Americans along with everything else that's going
1: on. How was it to produce a project like this? Because I know Annie is producer and then you're also a producer. Yeah. And I know that's probably one of the hardest jobs making sure Gary has everything he needs and everybody else has everything they need for this thing to come together.
2: Most definitely. Filmmaking is such a collaborative art form. You have wardrobe, you have makeup, you have sound, you have casting, you have art department, production design, props. You have to cater, you have to feed people. So there's like a million details, and yes, it's a lot of work, but it's so much fun, man. And especially with this crew, working with Gary is incredible. He's a good dude, and Annie is also very amazing. Joma Films
1: is a really great production company to work with.
2: You've worked with
1: Gary and Annie before on other projects, so, You kind of know expectations a little bit and you're kind of a family, right? You get the same people together.
2: Definitely, yeah. I've worked with Gary and Annie many, many times. Over the years, they've become great friends of mine. We got along extremely well, both as friends and professionally. Overall, I would say that this was a super fun production, man, from beginning to end. And we feel really lucky to be able to do this for
1: a living. Good to see you, Louie. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate you. You too, brother. Cheers. All right, peace. My office mate and dear friend Gary Lundgren, his movie Phoenix, Oregon World premiered last night at the Ashland Historic Armory to a wall-to-wall sold out crowd Mm -hmm. of over 500 people. And I gotta say, I'm thrilled that he hit a home run. This is Jesse Borrego, by the way.
0: Thanks for inviting me. And thanks to the Ashland Independent Film Festival. Last year, they brought the documentary Dolores about Dolores Huerta and they brought her here. Peter Bratt, incredible director. I've worked with him a couple of times. They are really opening their doors to independent film and to diverse cultures, really representing their voices in a festival like this. And a lot of times those films have no places to show or a lot of the festivals they go to are very culturally specific and I think it's beautiful. You have a great audience here. So I think in this vortex, this magic place of artistry, it's appropriate that Phoenix, Oregon got its premiere here at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I know a lot of times we want our independent film to make it to Sundance or to get to South by Southwest as the new hip festival to be at, or to get to Cannes if you're exotic enough. But the reality of it is, is right now, the entertainment industry and the creation of content is so saturated with all kinds of stuff that it's a meat market and you're competing for that valuation. So it becomes less about nurturing something like Phoenix, Oregon, as opposed to, are you good enough? So I think it was serendipity that went all the way around and came back to premiering at the Ashland Independent Film Festival and therefore found its core audience. And I think because of that, it's going to grow by leaps and bounds. An independent always has to, what they say, find its legs. I say with this film, and I tell you when you say, I'm glad he hit a home run the other night, I knew that. When I knew that James LeGros was the lead, I'm a fan of his work and I've known him for many years. You know, we came up together as young actors. As a matter of fact, in 2017, we were both in the third season of Fear of the Walking Dead. Me and James know each other and we love each other's work. So when he knew that I was gonna be Carlos and I knew that he was Bobby, if it's a buddy picture and we're the buddies, we got that. And then I heard that Lisa Edelstein had signed on. Yes, trifecta, bam, we got this. And then all of a sudden, bam, we capture Diedrich Bader as Kyle, a brilliant actor that's able to make a character like that three dimensional. Comes in in the middle of production and kills it. Now we're worried about the back half of the film with the weird character Al at the bowling alley. And we score Kevin Corrigan, again, his relationship with James LeCrow. And Kevin comes in and again, another home run hitter and wraps up the back half of the film. So I knew as this train was moving along and people were jumping on board, knowing what I know, after 35 years in the industry, I went, this is a gem. But I also know how tough it is to finish and to get out independent films. So I leave it alone, I keep checking in, but I'm saying, man, if he gets half of what I saw live, then he's gonna have his film. So sure enough, boom, 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 boom. Man, when I saw it last night, I went, see, I knew it. I knew that once he put all of his artistry on it, that what we did was gonna come across and it was all gonna be right there. Everything worked, rock and roll. James Lagro was throwing strikes on camera. That's what we were going for. That in itself led to this excitement amongst everybody. But I think what was wonderful too is, the interfacing with all of the Oregon talent, the actors, the extras that came and helped us who were friends and family and really people coming to play ball with us and just having a good time. Barry, the owner of Hanscom's Bowling center, he was a hoot. He was loving the fact that this was happening in his backyard. Another person would have been like, oh my God, I'm shut down for two weeks. What am I gonna do? No, he embraced the process like we were redoing his house and i think demystifying the whole process of filmmaking was fascinating to him and his people and once they embraced us and they saw that we were normal joes just like them they were kind of like wow you guys are just really normal people and so as we chugged along it just became more and more love more and more acceptance of what was going on and all of that led to this freedom for us as artists to create this world And I know that as stressful as independent filmmaking is, Christine Vachon of Killer Films always used to say it's a controlled crisis. Gary says we're going to war. Dietrich Bader said the same thing. But I think when you all buy into a vision and you're also having a good time, then you tolerate those things that would make other people cringe and step away. And I think then that's where the magic happens. That's when possibilities occur. I always liken it to capturing lightning in a bottle. And you're trying to see how many bottles you can get of lightning so that you can go back in the editing room and put it all together. When you saw the panel earlier today, there was so much love being given to them by the Oregon film community, by the people at large, by the extended family. It was kind of this camaraderie and understanding of people that have a higher vision. And so I think they've always kept that feeling that, hey, we're trying to do something here, but we have to be enjoying ourselves. I'm so happy for them, and I'm so happy for this film. And I'm going to do everything I can to keep it rolling all summer because I would really like to see them not only make their investors' money back, but I would also like to see them get more people to see it, get as many people as I can to go see this.
1: Jesse, how did your acting career begin?
0: I started in the 80s on a television show called Fame with Debbie Allen and Janet Jackson about a school of performing arts based on the uh, Alan Parker film Fame. And me and Janet were the new kids. So they spun it off into a TV show and in 84 I was one of the new kids. But it became hugely popular overseas. And for the last eight years we've been doing reunions. We did one in L.A. and this year we're doing one in the U.K. I have other films like Blood In, Blood Out, Con Air, and Fear the Walking Dead that have huge fan bases. So whenever I do those memorabilia signings, I come across all kinds of fans of mine and they always ask me, well, what's next? So for the past year, I've been saying, I've got a film called Phoenix, Oregon coming out, come on out and see it. And they're like really intrigued by the name, Phoenix, Oregon, and by the fact that I'm playing a pizza chef. They go, what? Do you know how to make pizza? And I go, no, but I didn't know how to paint in Blood In, Blood Out, and I played a Chicano artist, so.
1: You were tripping out a little bit about pounding the dough, weren't you?
0: Yes, that there is my perfectionism as an actor. You want to do the best, and you want to seem like you know what you're doing. So I had a moment where, because the Napolitana style of pizza is very specific to the hand gesture and to the way they spread out the dough, and it looks great, but you have to practice it so that it looks authentic. And he was sending me all these YouTube videos, and I kept stressing out. And then I realized, you idiot, you don't have to learn how to make pizza. You just have to look like you know what you're doing. So at that point, I went, hello, I have a college degree in the technique of faking it, the technique of BS. But it happens every time I have to do something that I'm unfamiliar with. Even though I'm trained in the technique of due diligence and learning something frequently on big budget films, they would have had a hand double and they would have had a guy that would have worked with me. But since this was an independent film, especially when it's someone like me who's physically very proficient, I'm a theater-trained actor, so I pride myself on being able to look like I know what I'm doing. When I first read it, I was saying, oh, this is the part to play. I'm a physical actor, so I always bring a little bit of physicality, especially to distinguish my different characters in different films. I think this one was a natural extension of that eternal optimism.
1: Did you guys eat a ton of pizza on that shoot? I didn't because I'm vegan. I had to fake
0: a lot of stuff, mouth chew a lot. The good thing is that Carlos didn't eat too much because the whole thing was that he wouldn't taste his pizzas. So it wasn't until the last scene with the family that he actually puts a pizza in his mouth. I'll tell you a secret. You realize we shot those two cafe scenes at the same time, the beginning one and the end one. So I had to tell the entire story in one day of shooting. It was one of our first days.
1: You look like you felt comfortable being vulnerable and feeling safe that your compadre over there has got your back.
0: That's exactly what it felt like. It felt like you could do no wrong. But that made you buy into the vision of Gary's narrative.
1: We're talking, of course, about Gary Lundgren, the writer and director of Phoenix, Oregon, the movie.
0: Yes, and I think that knowing that as artists, all of the actors understood that camaraderie, that it was heading towards a specific narrative and that there had to be these ideas of conflict that had to be resolved. But that's what we do as storytellers. You know, we find the conflict, we find the boundaries, we create them so that we have things to overcome, obstacles to overcome. And that's the beauty of the human narrative. That's the joy of the human condition, to overcome those things. Saw a great film here at the festival, a film that had won the Jury Sundance Award, The Infiltrators. And those two filmmakers, Alex Rivera and Cristina Ibarra, are friends of mine. Cristina actually went to the UT Film School with my brother James Borrego, who's now the new film teacher at San Antonio College in my hometown of San Antonio, Texas. Having seen her grow as an artist and as a young filmmaking student to the point where they've made this narrative Their obstacles were trying to tell a story that doesn't have any Hollywood budget behind it. A story that needed to be told about these dreamers that are infiltrating these ICE facilities to try and get some of these individuals help. And actually getting themselves, as undocumented individuals themselves, getting themselves arrested in order to be able to do this because of their lack of fear now of this systematic pressure. It was a beautiful story and it was a true story, but how did these filmmakers do that without a big budget? And the incredible way that they did it was inspiring to us as filmmakers. Again, it spoke to the artistry of what we do as storytellers. And I think we reiterated that in Phoenix, Oregon, the feel-good story of the year, because here you follow along with us, and before you know it, in that catharsis, we all feel like Bobby. We all feel like Carlos. We all feel like Tanya. (sighs) We breathe that sigh of relief that we have family, that we have someone to invite us back to the dinner table. One of the fears, I think, of independent filmmakers is that they go, what if it doesn't go anywhere? What if it doesn't see distribution? And I sat there and I told Gary a story. I go, as much as everybody loves that film Blood In, Blood Out, Taylor Hackford film, Hollywood Pictures at that time, because of the LA riots, decided not to release the film. So after four years of development, two and a half, three years of production, $30 million, they were ready to take a loss. All of this passion, the writer, Jimmy Santiago Baca, the actors, me, Benjamin Bratt, Ving Rames, Billy Bob Thornton, Michael T. Williamson, On and on, incredible talents and all of the passion that we put into this film. Bill Conti did the soundtrack. All of this energy, and it sputters out. And in a minute, Hollywood Pictures is ready to take a loss. This movie will never be seen. And if it wasn't for Jeffrey Katzenberg and Taylor Hackford being an Academy Award winner for Officer and a Gentleman, it would have never been theatrically released. But because of who they are, they were able to release it. However, it was deliberately done so that it did not have the success that they needed. And one of the big things they did is they changed the name to Bound By Honor. It had been promoted as Blood In, Blood Out. So it was obvious that they were doing that in order so that it didn't get its numbers. And when it went to video and it was still VHS, no DVD, pay-per-view changed the name back to Blood In, Blood Out. It caught on. And once it caught on on video a couple of years later, and then DVD, the director's cut, it kept building. Now, 25 years later, generationally, internationally, it is probably the most successful flop for Hollywood pictures, but the film itself got seen. I thought that no one would ever see it. Now, everyone mentions it. People from Kuwait have seen it. It was a big film in Japan. It had a Spanish version, Sangre por Sangre, where we dubbed the Spanish voices. Latin America loves this film. It won in Havana, it won in Colombia, it won Film Awards. It had a national release in Mexico where Disney and Hollywood Pictures had an affiliate. And it did huge international numbers. So the film got seen even though it didn't domestically get seen right away. So I told Gary, I go, look, the reality of it is any film that we make, as long as we keep putting it out there, it's going to get seen, especially if it's as good as this is. And Phoenix, Oregon is this good. But the reality of it is when you put passion into a project, it's going to live forever.
1: It's a good story about people that wanted to make it, were willing to sacrifice, Mm -hmm. be vulnerable, take chances and lose, but lose with some dignity Mm -hmm. and keep going. Yes,
0: pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you start singing and dancing again. Keep the dance going, you keep the song happening. When Native American philosophy, the drum is the heartbeat of the earth and the heartbeat of humanity. So you keep that drum drumming, and that beat keeps us going. And that's what we all tap into. I think that Phoenix, Oregon is going to spread that good word, and uh, hopefully we'll all, as storytellers and as filmmakers, keep it going. is our producer, but Luis Rodriguez himself is a beautiful human being that has this sense of family. So even as a producer, he's got these crew members that he works with all the time that love him because he treats them like family. He doesn't beat them up. You can tell that he's really showing love for not only the crew, but the project. And so I think he brought the whole idea of the Latino family James is on one side in the isolationism of Bobby's depression and midlife crisis, but his buddy, his best friend, has the support of the family, relates to his father, relates to his nephew. So there's a generational thing happening. So the Latino culture is the hero of the film. But I love that Gary, in his wisdom, didn't cater to the culture, didn't try to exoticize it. Let it be people people he knew, people he recognized. He let Luigi weigh in on exactly where these little idiosyncrasies were in our culture. He allowed me as an actor to just be Carlos and to flavor it up the way that I thought it should be flavored. And that intuition as a director, letting your actors fill these characters in, is brilliant. And I think when you have that type of ambiance and that type of environment as an artist and as an actor, Ooh, you're gonna bring A-game. You're gonna bring lightning and a big bottle. And I think that's what an independent director really wants.
1: It's a big job, man. The organizational aspect of it alone. I think that's where
0: his connection and collaboration with Annie, his wife is. Annie, an incredibly intuitive producer who I believe could direct in her own right. She understands this and she gets it, but she also understands that he's the auteur, the director and the writer. She's a fan of his work, which is a beautiful thing as a collaborative team. I saw that also in The Infiltrators with Alex Rivera and Christina Ibarra, you know, who are two filmmakers that come from two different worlds. But, you know, as collaborators, I saw the beauty of that on film. So I'm loving that whole collaboration thing between husband and wife and exactly what that brings to the table. But I think that in her own right, Annie as a producer understands the process and understands that big job that it takes to do this. So I think she takes on a lot of that so that he can be, in those moments, just the auteur and just the artist.
1: In a town full of divorced people, uh, they've been married longer uh, than just about anybody I know.
0: (laughs) Well, you can see the love in their beautiful daughter. You know, she was on screen with us a couple of times. You know, we're raising some pretty incredible human beings, man, if we can just keep the possibilities open for them. They're gonna do the things that we're not gonna be able to achieve. The idea of family and the continuation, you know, in Native American philosophy, we talk about seven generations. And I used to think, I can't think seven generations in the future, that's too far. But then I realized that it didn't mean seven generations in the future. It meant seven generations from where you're at in the center. So you're three generations back, your ancestors, your great grandfather, your grandparents, you, your children, their children so that was the seven generations and now you understand holistically what we're living and so if you teach your children that and now they're encompassing that now you're kind of widening the scope of the human experience and the human family so if we all thought like that then we'd get over these archaic ways of thinking when you're just thinking
1: chronologically
0: you know you're either living in the past or you're worried about the future that's
1: where suffering lives. That's where suffering where, lives. Where there is the illusion of time. Yes. If you feel good right now, that's all that you need to feel about Absolutely. is right now. Absolutely. The future has not happened. There's nothing for you to get upset about, and the past is irrelevant.
0: Yes, and think even less egocentrically And can I make someone else happy? Oh my God, there's an entire holiday for love. But nobody understands that love is the expression to another being not just a human being, another being, and how they feel. And that compromise that comes from the ego suppressing itself to love something bigger than itself. People always say that happens to them when they have children. It happened to me when I had my daughter. My obsession with my career became totally different. All of a sudden I started turning down gangster and bad guy parts because my daughter was four years old and I wanted to be able to say something positive when she said, dad, what were you doing when I was four years old? I had to really consider my environment, all of those things. And so I think at a certain point we need to just think like that. We don't have to wait till we have children or wait until we face death to get to that inspiration. You know, we need to find that immediately. We need to find it in the here and now, share that. Now, as artists, we try to do that all the time because it's a reflex. The need to express, as a kid I was always singing, but my grandmother was always singing. My father was a musician, so I grew up watching him, playing the accordion all the time, working songs out, singing on stage with his band, expressing the love of his culture. And my mother was a dancer. My sister then became a dancer. She was the talent show queen and the dancer. She danced in every talent show and she was triple letter sports. I saw this all around me, so it was a reflex expression of myself. So before I knew it, I was the go-to kid in high school for the school play. And I was the kid that they tapped to tell the class announcements and just kept growing. And Before I knew it, I was the guy that would go out on the dance floor and show off. But it wasn't because I was showing off, it was because I had to dance. I was that guy, and I was able to parlay it into, wow, you can study ballet, study jazz, what? I grew up on the MGM musicals, singing in the rain, man, one of my favorites. All they did was, I'm singing in the rain, man. And you know, it's interesting because my love of musicals, and not only the American musical, but my grandmother, one of my favorite memories, is I would come home and I'd sit up with my grandmother, and we would watch the mariachi musicals. We'd watch Antonio Aguilar and Cantín Flas and Tintan. She would watch the films from The Age of Gold in Mexican cinema. And oh my God, the musicals that they were making. They had the cha-cha music that America was trying to bring up north. The Ricky Ricardo, the real stuff was happening in the Mexican films and these Latin American films. And that's the stuff I would watch with my grandmother. And then she would sing those songs to me And then I'd hear my father performing them down the street at the local dance hall. So there was this connectivity as a Chicano, as a Mexican-American kid that I encompassed and that my family was one of those families. Years later, when I got together with my wife, she was an actress as well, but her family was from the Carpas. The Carpas were the Mexican-American vaudeville of the early 20th century. They would travel around, and they would do these vaudeville type shows, but they were with a mixed audience. It was the Southwest and they were called the Carpas. And that's where a lot of these famous Mexican stars came from, Tintan, Cantinflas, all these guys were from the Carpa circuit, the 10th circuit. So this lineage of family and the fact that we were always performers and that somehow or other, that's how you made your living. Everybody sang, everybody played an instrument. The family got together and everybody pulled out their instruments and sang the songs. It was like a natural part of my being. So when I got older and I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's techniques, there's actual theory. It was so easy for me. It was a no brainer because I'd already been immersed in the love of the expression. Even when I got into the industry, people were like, well, you never get butterflies. And I said, no, I have supreme confidence in my expression. It's rooted in myself. It's rooted in the things that I love, my grandmother, her teachings, my ancestors, their music, their dancing, and then ultimately the things that I saw growing up and the needs that I saw that needed to be addressed. The feeling of being treated as another, an underclass, the racism, the revisionist history of all of the American history in the Southwest. Those were very real things to me that I saw and that I felt were never addressed in American entertainment. So I wanted to kind of do those things as part of my new expression. Then I also grew up in the 70s and 80s with the end of the hippie liberal activist mentality and then the Chicano activism that kind of became then the punk take the system down mentality and as a young actor in college, That's the energy that I gravitated to, you know, the rock and rollers and the rebels and the punks. And so all of that blended in my aesthetic and synthesized into what I've been able to do in my career. And I've been very lucky to have played real American Latino characters, not always immigrants, not always bad guys. I've even gotten to play American heroes that were anti-American at the time, Tecumseh. It comes to the Shawnee warrior that tried to unite all the Native American tribes during the late 1700s, early 1800s. He fought with the British against the United States, who were then the very young 13 colonies. In playing that character, I learned a lot about the struggle of the early Native Americans against the expansionism of the European colonies, all of them, and how systematically, as much as there was... Nothing but Native Americans in this land. They were being squeezed by all these ideologies of countries and kings. And so they were constantly being played off against each other because really, once you destroy and destabilize their culture, then it's easy to expand.
1: Well, they were the original like, refugees, weren't they? Were the they?
0: original refugees, yeah, in their own land. But studying Tecumseh and realizing such a visionary leader. And the fact that he had learned from visionary leaders and that after him, visionary leaders came on, I felt very lucky again as an actor to have portrayed a character like that in such a well-known film. It was a TNT release. Back in 95, they did a series of five Native American films. So it got a lot of play. Again, as an actor of color, not being on the A-list, how do you get to do that? So I think I've been very lucky in my career and I can talk about these characters and be proud of them. And now at my age, to be able to do something like Phoenix Oregon, and be able to talk about a character like Carlos, and the beauty of the Latino culture in this film, and the fact that it's an American film. Again, Gary is showing humanity at its finest. Even the A-holes in the story are lovable. And they all have a moment of recognizing that and reversing their egos in their lives. It's great. I love that. That's beautiful writing, man. That's human writing and we need that. We need that more and more, especially now that Hollywood is really going towards that adolescent perspective of an all-powerful being saving us. That's the answer. And even though we in the industry, as artists of color who have been in the industry, we understand the dynamic and we understand the system. It really is consumerism and it really is wealth generation. So in all of that, you see the regurgitation of intellectual property. The acquiring of Marvel means that now they have to regurgitate these stories. So of course, you're going to have a million and one formulaic stories about these super beings who somehow or other, no matter how human you make them, Deadpool, all that, it's still the same thing. They're all powerful super beings. Comics had already evolved past that in the late 80s. They were already going to the graphic novel. Case in point, when I go, how's your comic going to Bobby? He goes, it's a graphic novel. Because it really is. The comics were those infantile ideas. But the reality of it is, is it can only go so far. No matter how human you made Peter Parker, it can only go so far. Once you got into the graphic novel and the evolution of the comics and animators at that point, oh, it was beautiful. And the storylines had nothing to do with these super beings other than as a departure point. That's where the Watchmen came from. The Watchmen. Those were the ones that we started reading, if you even stayed in that genre. Well,
1: those became more human stories than superheroes. Yeah. When I read Heavy Metal, I mean, the stories were
0: great, but I was there for the art. And I was moving beyond the narrative, which was still kind of adolescent, to the bigger picture, which was, again, the artistry, and then in the more adult graphic novels, It was the fantasy and science fiction that I was reading in my literature anyway. So you still had to go back to literature. You still had to go back to high art. You still had to go back to movies that meant something to get past all of the crap. Now we've come full circle, and that's the big
1: dollar. I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a hopefulist. I hope we get through this shit. I like it. Hopefulist. I'll take that.
0: I'll take that. I'm an optimist because the best thing that I learned from the documentary, I Am, is that when you get to 51%, it'll tip. I believe we're at 50-50. I have the hope and I have the inspiration that we're gonna get to 51 going in the right direction. So the end of it, inclusive with that, was that love was a stronger vibration and that somehow or other we've been duped by the power structures. Back in the day, they asked a well-known industrialist at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, was already pollution starting and everything else, and they asked, what's the problem with the world today? And he said, I am. And nobody understood exactly what he was talking about. Now with global warming, the type of leaders that we have, they should watch that documentary and realize that that's their answer. What's the problem with the world? I am. They have to make that realization. But we can't wait for them to make that realization. We're the 51%. Let them be the bucks that rut and fight, man.
1: I am the one who needs to do something about this. Yes, take
0: responsibility for what's happening. And that's one beautiful thing that I saw here at the Ashland Independent Film Festival. I saw a lot of people really wanting in their hearts to realize that I am. We are the ones that need to create that change. And by being here with us, by celebrating these very diverse narratives, I'm sure a lot of which challenged people's concepts. And you know, I experienced this in Klamath Falls as well. The people here in Oregon, the people in California, the, even in Texas, in my state, where I live in San Antonio in South Texas, Austin's right up the road. So I tell people, no, we're very progressive in the way we think. Politics aside, humanity is what counts. So it's not about the ideas of divisiveness. Again, we reiterate, it's about realizing that we have two directions we want to go. We're all headed to the same place anyway, right? The great beyond, we're all going over the cliff. But do we want to go together, collectively singing in a joyful way? Or do we all want to go pushing and shoving? Sounds horrible. Fearful, yes. Mother Earth is hurtling through space and you really want to develop space programs to go where? We can't even take care of this place. (laughs) I'm always trying to be that 1%. So if we're 50-50, I'm always trying to be that 1% that's gonna take us in that direction. Holding out for a role like Carlos in Phoenix, Oregon is part of that because every season I see two or three new shows, Netflix included, that I know I'm never gonna be a part of because I know that the five characters that they may want me for are characters that I'm not gonna to relate to the material, I don't agree with the perspective of it, and I can't relate to the character. That's not the character that needs to be portrayed. And the catch is always, well, they need a good actor like you to bring that. And I always tell them, I go, no, 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 no. It's the perspective that's skewed. I can make this character as nice and as wonderful as you want. And I can make him as interesting as you need him to be. But the perspective is the same. He still functions as a villain. He still functions as a plot device. The perspective is still that we're the evil ones, that we're the undocumented, that we're the victims. Even if I'm playing a cop in a crime drama, nine times out of 10, There's a brown person on the other side of the interrogation table. So how does that service the change in perception of what's going on in the world? As an artist, you have to draw a line. I've always gone back and talked to schools and a lot of it has been about higher education, getting into college, especially in my culture. The high school graduation rate is very low in my barrios and the retention rate in college is very low. So they get into college and then they can't sustain it financially or mentally. So for me, That's been a lot of my career doing that. But now, having had a career, now as I talk to these young aspiring filmmakers and artists, I see now that I can influence them in another way, and that's to continue the cultural narrative, to be proud of who they are, to tell their story, because their story hasn't been told. And I also know that in the future, those are the opportunities for me to shine in their projects. I see that. And so as I'm sowing the seed, Johnny Appleseed kind of speak, now I see the saplings that are growing. And I really believe that that's where my future good work is gonna be. Now I've taken on that role as a producer to try and make those projects happen. I've got a nonprofit called Cine Studio San Antonio that I created with my brother in San Antonio to be able to formalize all of that teaching and collaborating with these young media groups that I want to inspire. So it's been kind of cool. Look it up, CinesStudioSATX.org, S-A-T-X, San Antonio, Texas.
1: You've been a brilliant guest, man. It was great to meet you yesterday, just before the world premiere of Phoenix, Oregon. Yeah. And then to be in that audience and everybody cheering and having a good time yep. and loving your work. It's my honor to have you on the show, man.
0: Hey, Thanks for inviting me and keep it up. Whatever you do, man, you give a good talk.
1: Cheers, man. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was super fun to have Jesse and Louie on the show talking about Gary Lundgren's latest film, Phoenix, Oregon. They're all about to take off in the next three days and head out on that national tour to pimp that movie. So if you're out there in one of those places where that movie is, I implore you to go see it. I've seen it twice. A great movie-watching experience, a feel-good movie to see. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. To listen to and download all the shows, go to CastBox, iTunes, and Stitcher. If you go to CastBox and become a subscriber, you'll get pinged every time a new show comes up. It's always great to make this show for you. I really appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week. To find out where Phoenix, Oregon, the movie is going to be playing and showtimes, visit them online at phoenixoregonmovie.com or jomafilms.com. J-O-M-A, Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. This show is being sponsored by Phoenix, Oregon, the movie.
2: Whatever you're doing is not working. There's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do. Change what you do. Change what you do. Change what you do. Change
0: what you do. Change 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 yes. I am Citizen
2: Forty Four. <laughs>